0: Chapter 15 of Jerry Macaulay, His Life and Work, by Jerry Macaulay, and edited by Robert M. Offord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kristen Hand. Chapter 15, Recollections Continued. Christ first and last, Christ all day long, my hope, my solace, and my song. His love so full, so sweet, so strong. Christ for me, Christ for me. Unpromising as Jerry's appearance then was at first sight, there was something irresistibly winning about him, which at once awakened the interest of those who came in closer contact with him. And I became impressed, before I had known him long, with the sincerity of his purpose, and a sort of sturdy, manly independence and earnestness which characterized him. I saw a good deal of him, and we became fast friends." One of the first evidences of the reality of the change which Grace had wrought in him, and of the divine light in his conscience, was a prompt confession that he and Maria were not man and wife, and a request for advice as to what they ought to do. Be married, we said, of course. Ah, there's the rub, said Jerry. Further conversation developed the fact that there were reasons why their immediate marriage would not be expedient. We then told him that they must live apart until Providence should open the way for their lawful union according to the ordinance of God. To this they readily assented. Maria lived for a while in a Christian family in New Jersey, and afterward went to the home of her parents in another state and remained a while. When she came back, all obstacles having been by that time removed, they stood up together in the parlor of Howard Mission, and were solemnly joined in marriage, the writer and a few other friends being present. I do not think I ever in my life assisted at a wedding which afforded me more genuine satisfaction. During Maria's absence, Jerry used sometimes to bring me her letters to read and talk with me about their future hopes and plans. And in this way, their sincere affection for each other, sanctified by grace in their regenerated hearts, had been revealed to me. Their mutual devotion and what they were to each other through all the trials and vicissitudes of their subsequent lives, and their final victory over their buried past in winning the confidence and respect of all who knew them, and until death parted them, does not need to be told. The blunt and uncompromising honesty before God which the foregoing incident illustrates was one of the immovable planks in Jerry's religious platform. Be honest with God and with yourself, he used to say, to those professing repentance and desire for a better life, and yet seeming to be keeping something back. You can't put off any humbugging lies on him. You may cheat me and maybe cheat yourself, but you can't cheat God. Turn yourself inside out and make a clean breast of it. There was little room in Jerry's heart for hatred of anything after it became filled up with grace and with the spirit of the master, but he did hate hypocrisy. This was about the only form of human weakness and depravity for which he did not have unlimited charity and compassion. He could not bear a hypocrite. It seemed as though he could not breathe with patience the air that was tainted with his presence, almost as though he had a kind of magnetic consciousness that there was a hypocrite somewhere about before he got within a block of the mission. He always wanted to fire them out and keep them out. This was about the only point on which Jerry and I ever split. I used to think sometimes that he was too hasty in his judgment and too hard on those whom he thought were not honest. I used to tell him that he might mistake human inconsistency and the results of human weakness for hypocrisy, and that there was hope that even a hypocrite might be reached by divine grace if he kept coming to the meetings. We had some lively discussions about it, but I could never make much impression on his convictions in this respect. I had abundant occasion to admit that Jerry had an uncommonly keen scent for hypocrisy and sham and fraud of every kind, and that his intuitions in detecting them were generally correct. One night in Water Street, a man who had come forward in the after meeting was asked by Jerry, as his custom was, to pray for himself. He began praying in a conventional and stereotyped way for all the poor sinners in the room, for the heathen, and for everything else but his own salvation. Jerry, feeling that the true ring was not there, kept still as long as he could, and then turning to the man said, "'Look here, my friend. You had better ask God to have mercy on your soul.'" in a tone that would have seemed harsh and unfeeling to anyone who did not know as well as Jerry did the kind of man he was talking to. Jerry and his wife both had a very vivid sense of the change which Grace had wrought in their lives and lot. I used to visit them in the humble lodgings, always scrupulously neat, in which they lived while Jerry was working at one thing and another that he could find to do before the mission was opened. I had taken tea with them one night. They were living in Division Street then and after tea we sat talking, and they told me a great deal about their past lives. Their thoughts were all of the wonderful things that God had done for them, and their talk of the past seemed to bring home to them with renewed force that night the blessedness they were then enjoying. After relating some of the sad and bitter experiences which sin had brought them, Maria, looking around the homely but cheerful room, and then at Jerry, and then at me, drew a long breath, and with a happy smile and glistening eyes said, Can it be possible this is us? In those early days, Jerry set an inestimable value upon every token of trust in him. He had been so long hunted and dogged and accustomed to the thought that he was an outcast and outlaw whom nobody would trust out of sight with the value of a cent, that it was a new and sweet experience to him to be trusted. What a moral invigorator a little timely confidence and reliance on his honor was to him, and maybe to others in like circumstances, as illustrated in one or two incidents, was often referred to in his public testimonies. He used to say, after telling what a miserable wretch and moral and physical wreck he was before Jesus picked him up, Just look at me now, holding open his coat and making a comical gesture of looking himself over. I have everything a man could want. I have plenty to eat, a good home and good clothes, and I am respected and trusted. Think of Jerry McCauley, the biggest bum that used to hang out around this ward, turned into a respectable citizen. Why, a few years ago, if a man with five dollars in his pocket met me coming down the street, he'd cross over on the other side, and lucky for him, too. But now I go downtown, walk into a big banking house, take an armchair, put up one leg over the other, and talk with the boss as big as life. And they don't set any detectives to watch me, either, or send for a policeman to run me out this is what Jesus has done for me, made a man of me, and he will do it for you too if you will let him. While Jerry was out of work, before he got steady employment, he used to come to me once in a while to see if I could put him on the track of something to do. One day I said to him, Jerry, I've got a job for you if you will take it. His eyes brightened. I'll take anything that's honest, he said. "'Well, Jerry,' I said, "'I have got a little yacht down in Gowanus Bay "'that wants watching until I can sell it. "'Now I want you to go and live on it "'and take good care of it, "'keep everything clean and in good order, "'and see that nobody runs off with anything, "'and I will pay you blank a month and your grub.' "'Will you trust me to do that?' "'He said with an expression on his face, "'that between what was to him the comical side "'of anybody trusting him with a valuable property,' and the emotion which the idea of being trusted awakened when he had fairly taken it in was a study. The unaccustomed luxury of feeling that he was trusted got the upper hand and his eyes filled with tears. The bargain was struck, and the next day Jerry took up his quarters on the little vessel. The boat had a lot of silver-plated ware on board of no great value, but as Jerry told me afterwards, he thought it was all solid silver and worth a mint of money and knowing that Gowanus Bay was infested with river thieves he was greatly oppressed with the responsibility and used to lie awake nights with his revolver cocked and jump up and creep out on deck at the slightest sound of the stealthy dipping of oars he told me afterwards that he was haunted with the fear that something might be stolen from the boat and then when it was missed i would think he had betrayed his trust and he was determined that if anybody got anything out of that boat it should be over his dead body After you had trusted me, I couldn't stand it, you know, to have you think ill of me, and I would have died first, Jerry said. Jerry often used to tell this story, portraying his anxieties and describing his night encounters with imaginary river thieves with inimitable effect, and would say, When I found I was trusted like that by a man who knew all about my past life, I began to respect myself and think, Jerry McCauley, there is a chance for you after all and you will be somebody yet before you know it and it gave me a big boost it was some time before jerry succeeded in getting steady employment he worked for a while on one of the ferries then as a longshoreman then on a steamship dock always ready to turn his hand to anything by which he could earn an honest living the persecutions of godless fellow-workmen who mocked at his religion the injustice of foremen who encouraged them and embraced every opportunity to place him at a disadvantage the requirement that he should work on sunday and other like causes drove him out of these different employments one after another these discouragements however never shook him from his purpose to live an honest life and to live it according to the light with which the holy spirit had illumined his conscience after a while the writer found a vacancy for a porter in a sewing-machine establishment on broadway where he was well known, which he determined to secure for Jerry. The question which persons interested in procuring employment for ex-convicts have often found an embarrassing one naturally arose. Should I tell them frankly what he had been and try to induce them to take him and trust him with a full knowledge of his past criminal life and his present purposes to serve God and be an honest man? Or should I suppress all this and simply recommend him as a man in whom I had confidence and trust to the chances of his past remaining unknown? I am aware that many good people have held opposite opinions as to the best course to be pursued in such cases. In Jerry's case, it was decided in what I believe to be the only right way, and the best and safest for the reformed man or woman in the end. I talked with him about it, told him that, while it might be more difficult at first to find a place for him involving any trust or responsibility, if his story was frankly told, I was sure it would be better in the long run to be square and open about it and trust God that if he went into this place, for example, under false or concealed colors, someone might turn up at any time who had known him, and, pointing him out, whisper in the ear of his employers or his fellow workmen that they were harboring and working side by side with a man who had worn the stripes and been behind the bars, when he would probably be turned out in disgrace, no matter how honest and faithful he had been, and be a marked man. Jerry fully agreed with me, and, with the unflinching honesty to which I have already referred, said, I don't want any hiding or dodging. I won't be a fraud in any way, whatever else I am. I want to be just Jerry McCauley and nothing else. I then went to the establishment, mentioned, and told them frankly about Jerry's past life, who and what he was, and what I knew he was resolved hereafter to be. I told him what I had seen and known of his new life, and expressed my entire confidence in his sincerity and honesty. They looked grave at first, but became warmly interested in my account of Jerry. They hesitated, however, fearing that his past career would be discovered and make trouble among the others. Finally, I said, take him, trust him, make no attempt to conceal his history. Let all your other men know that you know all about him and have taken him for what he is, and I will be responsible for him. If he runs off with anything, send me the bill. They took him, and he remained in their employment until, in the enjoyment of the confidence and respect of the entire establishment, he left it to open the mission in Water Street. When I told him, after he had been there a while, what I had said to them, and adding laughingly, if you should get away with a half-dozen truckloads of sewing machines some night, it might break me, he said with an amused look, but with emotion, you shall never be ashamed of me or sorry you said that. If the cellar where I work was a gold mine or had diamonds lying around loose." Your promise should never cost you a cent. While he was working there, I used to call frequently to see him. He worked in the packing room in the basement, which had an entrance down a flight of steps on the side of the street. When I wanted to see him, I used to run in that way. One day I called and did not see him in his usual place. I waited a while, and presently he came out from behind a pile of packing cases in one corner with a radiant face. He said, when I get lonesome and discouraged and feel the blues coming on, I go down on my knees behind that great pile of boxes and pray, and then I am all right again. Jerry was passionately fond of singing and had great faith in its efficacy as a means of grace to the converts and in its power to attract those whom he sought to reach. He would say, when a verse of a hymn had not been sung to suit him, try that again, sing as if you mean it, and don't go to sleep over it. It will do you good why if people should judge by the way you'd sung that verse they'd think your religion was an awfully dull and uphill business now let's raise the roof and suiting the action to the word he would sing as if his whole soul and body went into the hymn sometimes at the beginning of the meeting when the chapel was not filling up as fast as he would like to see it he would give out a hymn like pull for the shore or let the lower lights be burning in which there was ample scope for volume of sound and say open both doors there wide Now sing so they can hear you clear down to Dover Street and up to James Slip. And they did. He was very impatient of long-winded harangues in a testimony meeting, and was inexorable in enforcing the one-minute rule, with which he had placarded the chapel, even at the expense of giving offense to thin-skinned people who were unused to his blunt ways, and did not know the wealth of tender solicitude for sinners that lay underneath his sharpest criticisms and his rudest speech. These long-winded fellows kill the meeting, he would say. Wind em up and set em a-going, and they don't know when to stop. Now speak short. If you've come in here with a long yarn, all fixed up nice, with a beginning and a middle and an ending, just cut off both ends and give us the middle. I was a poor drunkard, a miserable loafer and a tramp, without a decent coat to my back, full of wickedness and sin, and a terror around this terrible ward. Jesus picked me up and saved me and has kept me saved. Glory to his name. There's my testimony, and it didn't take me a minute to tell it either. When his health began to fail and the trouble with his lungs, the seeds of which had perhaps been sown in those dreadful nights on the river, had begun to be serious, he would sometimes, after an attack of pneumonia or a hemorrhage, almost literally crawl downstairs to the meeting. At such times he would say, with a tenderness and solemnity that filled our hearts with emotion and our eyes with tears, They say I've only got one lung and part of another. I am weak and sore and it hurts me sometimes to talk but I think of what the dear Jesus suffered for me, and my heart is full. I am happy. Sometimes I think I can't live very long. It seems as if my lungs were all gone. But while I've got a piece of lung left, I want to use it to speak for Jesus. I want to praise him with my dying breath. He had a wonderful faith, a faith which was childlike in its simple and confiding trust, yet firm as a rock. It was of a very practical sort, too. He believed in direct and specific answers to prayer, of which he had frequent and unmistakable experiences, and in which the interposition of God in matters unseen and unknown by us until the need, and the divine hand supplying it, are revealed to us at the same time. Once the old buildings in Water Street needed some repairs, and when the plaster had been stripped off the ceiling, showing the ends of the beams all rotted away, Jerry said, It seems as though God's hand held up that old second floor, for there was nothing else to hold it up, and he believed it. He was very persistent in whatever he undertook, in accordance with what he believed to be the will of the Lord. His obstinacy in the pursuit of anything to which he was persuaded that God had called him was beyond the power of human persuasion or reasoning to overcome. When he felt that his work in Water Street was done, and that he was called to labor uptown, I did not think it was wise for him to leave Water Street, broken in health as he was, and assume the responsibilities and labors of a new enterprise, and I earnestly and honestly opposed it. But notwithstanding his love for me and his respect for my opinions, my disapproval did not cause him to falter or waver for a moment, and the Cremorne mission was the result. I was afterwards glad to see and to acknowledge that Jerry's divinely guided impulses were right, and that what I thought my cool-headed judgment was wrong. His work and its influences were not limited to any particular class. His principal aim was the salvation of outcast men and women, for this he labored and thought and prayed. But his work had a reflex influence, which spread out through all classes, and by means of it hundreds of refined and cultivated people were led to Christ, and a multitude of Christians were aroused and animated to higher and better lives, and to more earnest and believing work for Jesus." He used to say, after exhorting the drunkards and those low down in sin to come to Jesus and be saved, and calling on the Christian people present to pray for them, and don't let us forget the kid glove sinners, who need it as bad as any of these poor fellows. God is no respecter of persons, was one of his favorite sayings, and nothing delighted his heart more than to see a seal-skin sack or broad cloth coat at the bench side by side with an old red shirt or a ragged and disheveled dress the wearers of both taking in the water of life from the same fountain. Jerry's public speaking was often a curious mixture of pathos and wit, quotations from scripture and the vernacular slang of the class whom he addressed. The conventional notions of propriety of refined and fastidious Christians were sometimes startled and shocked by his quaint and blunt speech. His mimicry, his total disregard of the tones and manner which they had previously regarded as inseparable from proper and becoming religious speech, and his revelations of the sin and depravity of his past life, but when they came often enough to see how all this was signally blessed and honored of God to the salvation of men, their jealousy for the proprieties went down before their interests in the results. I have frequently seen Christians restless and ill at ease, and manifestly disturbed as they listened for the first time to one of his characteristic exhortations or testimonies, and afterwards melted to tears and swept into resistless sympathy with him, his work, his methods, and all, as they listened to one of his indescribably tender and touching prayers over some sobbing penitent, and felt themselves borne by it nearer to the cross of Christ and the gate of heaven than the studied rhetoric of the pulpit or the dignified propriety of a church prayer-meeting had ever brought them. End of chapter 15